Hello and welcome to The Scrum. As some of you will know, we're a podcast focused on politics and media. I'm Adam Riley. We are actually doing something a little different this week. I've been spending a lot of time at the trial of the admitted Boston Marathon bomber Jahar Sarnayev. And today we're going to talk with two other reporters who have been there for most of the trial, if not all of it. Jim Armstrong from WBZ and Hillary Sargent from Boston.com. Jim and Hillary, thank you both for coming over to talk to us. Very happy to be here. Thanks for the invitation. Thanks, Adam. So, so what I want to talk to you guys about, and yeah, take it while I'm talking, a nice nose-enhancing shot. What I want to talk to you guys about is the, the sort of experience of covering this trial, what it's like to be a journalist covering it, if there are things you choose not to report, if you take home the really, really nasty stuff that you hear. We're all, I mean, we're all parents here, and I feel like I've processed this in sort of a different way than I would have as a non-parent. Um, one of the things that I found hardest is the details about uh, Martin Richards' death that have emerged in this trial. I had to look away at certain points when they were presenting the clothes that Martin Richard was wearing on the day he died. I almost felt like I wasn't doing my job properly because I wasn't watching closely. I wasn't reporting every detail. I wasn't looking as closely as some people at Martin Richard's parents. Let me ask you two, maybe to talk about whether you think being a parent has changed your vantage point on this, and also maybe whether there are things that you've chosen not to report that you could have reported, that for whatever reason you feel it just isn't quite right to put out there. So I think uh, for my purposes, it's, it's a, it has to do a lot with Martin Richard and Bill Richard's testimony. I really, I struggled with what to say, particularly during the autopsy report that was exceptionally, exceptionally graphic. And I, I struggled with how graphic do I want to be, mostly because of Twitter, right? I mean, I could be very censored for my story that airs on Channel 4 at the end of the night. I have a lot more control over what that story looks like, and I have a lot more time to think about how I want to put it. But as the tweets are coming out fast and furious and they're describing these intensely graphic injuries, I kept censoring a lot, and I noticed that other people tweeting were not. I mean, they were really describing each and every injury and I found myself unable to do so. Also, when, when uh, Bill Richard was talking, there were a couple of moments where I started to cry, and I thought I wasn't sure what to do with that as it was happening because I couldn't do anything other than picture myself in his shoes. I'm the dad of an eight-year-old boy who I think, I, he physically resembles Martin, right? So I can't, I can't not think, what would I do if I were that dad? What would that do to me and to my family? And I'm sort of getting distracted by that and thinking about that, and it definitely pulls me out of out of the moment. Uh, I think, from my perspective, I sort of assumed that the fact that they were there every day meant that it was important for them to hear people hear their perspective. And I do remember the day that that Bill Richard testified. I went straight from the courthouse to pick up my son at school and cried sitting in the parking lot before I went in. But I think after that, I, I would agree with Jim. I think from, from the perspective of Twitter, you don't have a lot of time to make these decisions. You're, you're sort of faced with, there's not much time to censor. So you're doing everything or you're doing a very limited amount. And I think that from my perspective, I assumed their presence in court every day meant that they thought it was important for people to hear this. And so I think I took more of the approach of not sensationalizing it, but the testimony was so sensational that just reporting it straight felt like sensationalizing it, and I think that felt uncomfortable, but it's uncomfortable to hear about a kid dying in it, like any way you cut it. 
How have you guys handled your reporting on Jahar's comportment and what it might tell us about his frame of mind? I know, Hillary, you and I were talking in court the other day. You made the point that on one particular morning, there were these totally divergent assessments of his demeanor and sort of how he was presenting himself in court. Can you just recap what you said to me that day? So I've, I've spent most of my time in the media overflow room, which on some level sort of allows you a better view of, of Sarnayev because you're looking at the front of his face and not the back of his head and, and allows less in terms of sort of audience reaction. You know, imagine all the reporters trying as, as best they can to report objectively on what he looks like. A group of, of different people are going to come up with different assessments. Two days ago, maybe, you had people saying he looks exhausted, he looks tired, he's smiling, he's, you know, all at the same time. And, and, and on some level, it feels conflicted, but, it, you know, but on, but on another level, I, I don't think anyone isn't trying the best they can to... to it's hard to look at a person and gauge how they're feeling, and I think it's very hard to look at Sarnayev and gauge it because he's not a person that that shows much emotion. Or, he, no, I mean, he, he totally isn't. And I made a big deal after the verdict of something that I thought was significant, but I have wondered if I overstated the importance of it. I don't know if you got, you probably did notice this. There were a couple times when the guilty charges were read out where he crossed his arms around his body tightly. I haven't been there, I think, Jim, as much as you, but that wasn't body language I remembered. So I thought that showed some sort of, you know, finally he was feeling vulnerable. And on a kind of a visceral level, maybe I found it kind of satisfying to see. So I played that up, but maybe I made a big deal out of nothing. Uh, what, what's your policy, Ben? Well, I struggle with it a lot, and I, I often come back to this idea that I don't know how he behaved or what he looked like before any of this happened. So it's really hard for me to gauge what his mental or emotional state is by watching him for two minutes here, one minute there. So all I can really do is say, I'm seeing him behave this way. But to Hillary's point, you've got 40 or 50 reporters, some in different rooms. I'm physically in that front row closest to him, but ironically have one of the poorest views of his face because I can see mostly the back of his head. So there are times when I'll tweet out, he seems tired or his arm is slung over the back of his chair or he's slouching down. That's my observation of him in that two or three minutes. Sometimes by the time I hit send on that tweet, he's changed and now he's in profile and he's actively chatting to David Brook. And two minutes after that, I can tell he's going through a yellow legal pad, apparently writing something down. So if Laurel Sweet is tweeting that he's actively writing, and then maybe someone from Channel 5 is tweeting that he's disengaged, and then you are each tweeting something different. All of them are true, but sometimes, and this happens a lot when a lot of the conspiracy theorists or Jahar supporters, they'll take all our tweets, bundle them together, and say, those people don't know what they're doing. This is a fake trial. They're all not paying attention. Like They're making it up as they go. They make all these ridiculous judgments based on what are discrete facts that are all true, but they're just true at different moments in a day. Go, go ahead. Oh, well, I was going to say, but the truth is we don't. I mean, none of us know. Like, I think reporters are in the unique position of knowing that the way they end up looking on camera to other people has little to do with the way they feel. So we have no idea if he's disengaged, and we have no idea if he's tired, and we have no idea if he's smug or if he looks smug or if he's happy or if he feels remorseful. And... You know, I think I do think all the reporters in the courtroom, and I've been impressed by this. I think everyone is making 
their best effort to assess in a given moment what it looks to them, you know, that he feels like. But it's safe to say that not a single one of us has any idea, really. Jim, you mentioned conspiracy theorists a moment ago taking us to task for our reporting. We were actually talking a little about conspiracy theorists before we started recording here. And Hillary, I believe you said, I love them. Is that right? Or I definitely did not say that. Okay. And that is like only a conspiracy theorist would ever believe that I would say such a thing. Um, look, I, I'm a conspiracy theorist by nature. Like there is no, there is no, there's nothing that I want to believe at face value. I will say that there are a couple things. One, I thought that this would be a case where, at a minimum, you would have a core group of conspiracy theorists who showed up at the courtroom every day. I remember at status hearings getting emails from women who told me that they were, you know, putting aside money that they had saved for vacations for their children, and they were going to come in for the status hearing thinking it was the trial. I really thought that there would be more of a presence. I think everyone has been surprised to the extent that there hasn't been. Um, but look, I think there are a couple of reasons for conspiracy theories in this trial. I think one is every 9-11 conspiracy theorist has sort of run out of steam. There's not a lot going on that, and you have to transfer that to something else. And I think the second thing is you have a case that has more sealed documents than any case that has been in U.S. District Court in Massachusetts I don't know, in decades. And 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 people who who pop into federal, you know, court coverage and kind of don't know what it's about see that and they see conspiracies. And if you haven't spent a lot of time covering court cases, that's a very unfamiliar thing and it really lends itself to that. You also have the Todashev case, which I know you've done a lot of work on, and you have a new book from Masha Gessen, who's a journalist of some repute, suggesting that you know, uh, as she puts it, that basically Tamerlan was being run as an FBI informant who got away from them. Um, so those are maybe aggravating factors when it comes to conspiracy theorizing. Yeah, I mean, look, I think with conspiracy theorists, you have a couple groups. You have a group of people that no matter what will always assume it's a staged event. You know, it, the government was, was doing it. No one then, died. Right. Or then, and then you have a, a group who thinks it was a staged event that went awry. And then you have a group that thinks it was not a staged event, but it was, you know, there, there was CIA involvement and it's vague, but you know there was CIA involvement. And I, I, I mean, I, I think that's sort of inevitable. Like, this is a case where it was inevitable that that was going to happen. I think the unique thing about this is that this is, a, this is a relatively unusual case. We are in a country that deals with terrorism all the time. It, I think it feels like if you're of a certain age that we are, and I think certainly if you're under the age of 30, it's a country that deals with terrorism all the time. But it, but it's not really, and so I think there's a, there's a there's a really bizarre age gap in this case, and I think you know that you know add the internet to that, and I think you know it's sort of a recipe for conspiracy theorists. But I do think that every every person in the media had a story ready to report on. The number of, of you know Sarnayev innocence protesters that would be standing outside the courthouse that never that just never happened. I find to your point that the conspiracy theorists, at least the ones that I have to deal with on a regular basis, are fueled in, entirely by the internet and by Twitter. So they're watching our tweets and they're watching all the evidence come out as relates to our tweets, and they're making these 
unfortunate and difficult to listen to conclusions about what they think they see. And I try to avoid engaging as much as possible because I might as well shout at this brick wall right here because I'm going to get the same response back. And even when you try to say... So I respond to them when I feel like there's a really concrete thing that I can say to clear up something that they misunderstand. And even that tends to backfire. Can you give me an example of a case where you have responded and regretted it? Uh, not that I've regretted it because I, I, I've, I've learned my lesson from other examples and I, I pull back before I do or say something that I will regret. But just this week during deliberations, I got a kind of snarky tweet from someone who said, okay, Armstrong, since you have time on your hands now, explain to me why uh, Johar is wearing different pants at Whole Foods and then when he comes out of the boat. And I thought, okay, perfect. I can handle this one because you're you're not a bright person. I'm going to take care of this. Those are four days apart. That's that's a really good reason why he's wearing different pants. Silence from him, no response back. Someone else, another theorist, jumps on and says, well, I, I think he meant to say, why is he wearing different pants at the convenience store versus in the boat? In the convenience store during which he's robbing Don Mang. And at that point, I pull out because I can't, I can't begin to talk to you about whether or not you think the dark blue pants in video A are fundamentally different than the light blue pants that come out of the boat or vice versa or whatever you think you see. If you've made up your mind that he's wearing different pants, then I'm out. I, I can't help you anymore. Did you want to get another yeah. word in here? No, I mean, look, I, you know, I, I, I'm a big fan of never blocking anyone on Twitter unless they're threatening my life. And uh, I would say the Sarnayev case has been the biggest test of that. Um, if you're a reporter covering this case and you don't block Sarnayev conspiracy theorists, uh, you will spend the entire day flooded with them. And, and I've made a de pretty definitive choice to, to not, you know, anyone can ask any question once, anyone can ask any question twice. When it's the same question 15 times and it's all in caps and, you know, you know, then, then, I, then I guess I make the choice. Look, I think there's a place for conspiracy theorists in this case, and I think there's a, the place for them is that there are ways in which this case has lent itself to conspiracy theorists that are unnecessary. I think the amount of documents that have been sealed in this case probably goes above and beyond what needs to be, and I, I don't think that's the reason there are conspiracy theorists, but I don't think it helps. People have a right to question what they're being told, and if they seem crazy, they seem crazy, but... I mean, there, there are two things, I think, that like make this country what it is. One is that a defense attorney can admit guilt, and we will still go through the motions of a, of a guilty, innocent, you know, of a trial that, that isn't about mitigating circumstances. And the second thing is, is conspiracy theories. I mean, it, you, it, you take the good with the bad, but conspiracy theories are about people not questioning their government and not getting in trouble for doing so. And, you know, that... It's, it's an inconvenience as a reporter, but I'm sure they do offend the, the memories of the victims. But, you know, but I think the rest of it is a spectrum, and I think people have the right to question what the government says, especially there are no cameras in federal courtrooms. So if, if you want to, like, have that die down a little bit, I think you, you give people the right to be in there all the time or else they're sort of drawn to that. Do you think this case would have unfolded differently if there had been cameras in the courtroom? Would it have changed the deliberations in some way? I really don't think so at all. I think it frustrates me so much to know that there are cameras in that courtroom and they're just feeding content 10 feet to the left and 20 feet down to the other courtrooms. 
there's audio and there's video, and it just why did, why can't it leave the building? I, I don't think it would affect the way in which any element of this happened. I, I really, really don't. You don't think that Jahar would be mugging for the cameras, for example, or? Well, so I, so I think you have to understand the way the cameras work. It's not as if there are the red tally lights that you see, and you can you can even tell what camera's on in the courtroom. I can't tell what camera is going off to the overflow room. So I don't. He would have to have this artificially false or whatever image he was trying to portray. That would have to be on 24/7 in the courtroom. He may attempt it, but I, I don't think he would be successful. No, I think you would have. I think it'd be a great service to, to the media. I think that, uh, but no, I don't think that there would be any difference. I think that I, I think I think Jahar Sarnayev is doing what Jahar Sarnayev wants to do, or some combination of what he wants to do and what his attorney wants him to do. And I, I, I sincerely doubt that he has any great understanding of the extent to which people are seeing that, reporting that. I don't get that sense at all. But I do think that from the conspiracy theory perspective, it would cut down on it, but I don't think it would cut down on it significantly. I think that's an element that that's an element that exists because we allow it to exist because it's America and in America, no matter how guilty you are, no matter guilty how guilty your defense attorney will admit you are from the beginning, you get a trial no matter what, and we have conspiracy theorists no matter what. And that's One thing that I've thought about in the court coverage that I've done in this trial and in the Bulger trial, which Jim, you covered too, is the fact that trials like this are sort of a combination exercise in the application of justice, but also a kind of a social ritual or a cultural ritual that at least has the potential to benefit a group of people who've been traumatized in some way. And I'm wondering if you think on either of those levels, the legal level or the social level, are, are people in Boston, whether it's victims or your average man or woman or kid, are they going to get something out of the fact that this trial occurred that they wouldn't have gotten if there had been a plea deal at the outset and we had just gone right to sentencing? I think the answer is yes, and I'm, I'm trying to think of a way to make that answer concrete right now. I think, I think if there had been a plea deal and he had just said, yep, it was me and we're all done, I think people in the community writ large would have felt robbed. Right, that's the best word. Like, they, they missed something. I still feel like they are all missing something because it's not televised. That'll, that'll always be something that bothers me. But being able to read the tweets and see the coverage and hear the radio reports and, and read the articles about it, I think is valuable to people. I think they need to hear what Bill Richard has to say and they need to hear uh, what Jeff Bowman has to say. I think th they need to know that those victims had their moment in front of him. I think they're, they're going to see even more of that during phase two when victims from whom we haven't heard anything yet get to confront him and say what they feel they need to say to his face, to not have had that opportunity, I think, would have really rubbed a lot of people the wrong way and would have, would have been a sore that would never heal, I think. If the whole thing couldn't have been televised and you had to televise one part, I would say the one part I would televise is actually not Bill Richard's testimony, although I think that's amazing. I think the extent to which I wish the reading of the verdict given how long it took, had been televised. There was something, I didn't even, I, I'm from Boston, but I didn't live in Boston at the time, but I came back that day and was at the Red Sox game and was a few blocks away when it happened. And even for me, there was something therapeutic, I guess you could say, about, the, about how long it took to read the verdict. And that 
you got to remember the first charge. If the first charge was guilty, then a lot of what we needed to know was going to happen was going to happen. There was going to be a, a you know a death a death penalty sentencing, and so the rest of it was sort of just it felt poetic in a weird way. Um, but I but I do think that my guess is that the answer to this is it's different for every person. I think for some people, the therapy was getting to run the next year. People who had been stopped on that line. I think for some people, the therapy has nothing to do with anything related to the trial. I think for people like the Richard family, like, who knows? Like, who am I to even suggest that I would know? And I think for, you know, I mean, I I think that it's such a personal thing. Um, but But I do think that there are probably some people for whom this makes it easier and you know, I don't know what else you can sort of know beyond that. That is going to do it for this installment of the Scrum. Jim Armstrong and Hillary Sargent, thank you both for uh, taking the time to do this. Thanks, Adam. Thank you. By the way, if you're interested in the Sarnayev trial or if you just like to follow good people on Twitter, you should be following both of them. Why don't you guys uh, give your your Twitter handles, as the kids say, for our audience? Hillary? Uh, Mine is Lil Sarge, which is L-I-L-S-A-R-G. Adam's laughing right now, but that's inappropriate. All mine is so relatively boring. How about at Jim Armstrong, WBZ? Jim Armstrong is a reporter at WBZ. Hillary Sargent is a senior columnist at Boston.com. If you like what you heard from the Scrum today or any other time you listen to it, please subscribe in iTunes. When you're in iTunes, don't forget to rate and review us. You can find links to iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and past episodes on our website, wgbhnews.org. scrum Our team includes David Bernstein and Peter Kadzis. Our producer is Abby Ruzica. I'm Adam Riley. You can find me on Twitter at RileyAdam, R-E-I-L-L-Y, Adam. The Scrum is a production of WGBH News.